Well, British people are not really known for being uh, social people, right? We have the stiff of the lipper, and we don't like talking about our feelings or our emotions. Uh, but I was always an anomaly growing up. I didn't think I was all that British because I loved being with other people. I loved socializing. I loved uh, having all kinds of experiences with other people. Uh, and I had to discover that I was actually British when I moved to Texas for the first time. <laughs> because if you thought, if you were a British person, you thought you could socialize and then you moved to Texas, you are gonna have your personal space bubble destroyed immediately. Uh, because Texan people, for those of you who have Texan friends or have lived in Texas at all, you know that they are, they've got that Southern charm and they love being around other people. So from the moment I landed in Texas, they were saying, well, hi, Andrew, come on over. We'll grill some steak. We'll have a good time. We'll drink some sweet tea. And they were just all about spending time with me. And it didn't matter where you went. People were hugging you, no matter whether you just met them 10 seconds ago. People were shaking your hand. People loved to be social and to be with one another in Texas. And so this really challenged me because I realized all of a sudden, wow, I don't know if I'm as social as I think I am. I don't know if I like people as much as I thought I did. <laughs> but this was a very instrumental moment in my life because it was the beginning of a lesson that God was gonna teach me about community and how important community is to us as Christians. This week, we are continuing in our series called The Disciplines of Grace, which is an odd combination of words, discipline and grace, and we've talked about that each week. But this week, we come to a discipline that we call the discipline of gathering. The discipline of gathering. And throughout this series, our heart is to consider the ways in which we can learn and take notice better of God's grace in our lives. And gathering together is one of those ways. It is a way in which we can better see the grace of God in our lives and the, the love God has for us as people. Now, when I talk about the discipline of uh, gathering, I'm sure most of you say, well, everyone can do that. It doesn't sound like much of a discipline. Everyone can get together. Uh, even the most hardened introvert has places in their lives where they spend time with another person. But gathering in the eyes of God, I think, goes much deeper than most of us really consider. I think that we will see when we come to God's word that the, the type of community and the type of gathering that God has in mind for us as followers of Jesus is very different than the type of gathering that we might think of in our own minds. Because to practice the discipline of gathering really means to embrace community and to embrace life together to such a degree that we are not who we were when we ended. The discipline of gathering means that we are to embrace community in such a way that it transforms who we are. So let's dive into God's Word and take a look at a passage today that talks about gathering in the early church, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's from Acts 2. And we are going to take notice of three reasons why we should gather together and how that brings us to the grace of God. First, we're going to see that we should gather to proclaim. Next, that we should gather to worship. And lastly, that we should gather to remember. So we're reading from Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is what God's word says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The first reason that we gather and practice the discipline of gathering is to proclaim. We gather to proclaim. Now, I was once on a mission trip to Tunisia when I was in college, and uh, we'd been spending a couple of weeks there, kind of spending time with some of the locals, starting conversations about the Bible, about Jesus. Uh, And in the course of doing this, uh, one of the families that we met had invited myself and a couple of my uh, partners over for dinner that night. Uh, And they'd uh, prepared a meal for us called Mluchai. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm trying to remember how they said it. But to this day, I'm not entirely clear on what Meluchai is. Let me show you a picture here that I found on the internet. I I managed to do some research to try and find out what was in it, but the the truth is that you can put various different items in it. This is what I saw when I sat down to that meal, is two mysterious objects floating in sewage water. (laughs) Now, for my Tunisian friends, if there is anybody, I love you and I'm just culturally ignorant, and so that's why I think this. This is probably a tremendous, amazing dish, but to me, the outsider from England, from America, I didn't know what that was. And I had heard all the stories about missionaries who have to eat things like goat's brains and all kinds of mysterious things in other cultures, but I also knew the missionary rule, which is when you get invited to someone's house, it doesn't matter what they put in front of you, you have to eat it. So I was going to have to play a little bit of dietary chicken and just kind of figure out, well, I'm just going to do it and see what happens. So as apprehensive as I was, I went ahead and I ate some of this. Uh, It didn't taste bad, but it also didn't taste good. So again, I'm not sure what the meat was or what was in that sauce, but what I can tell you is that the faces of my hosts when I sat down to eat that meal with them, when I ate the food that they give me, and when I spent that evening with them, it was the most wonderful thing to look at in the world. Because they had so much joy that I wanted to be there, that I wanted to eat a meal with them. Me, an outsider, a stranger, they loved having me there. And I think it's because gathering together, eating meals together, spending time with one another, proclaims the love of God. It proclaims the love of God. That first couple of verses that we read in Acts 2 and 42, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. See, gathering together is important because it proclaims who God is. This text is taken from shortly after Jesus ascended to his Father and the disciples were left to start carrying his message out. And the first symptoms, so to speak, of what Jesus accomplished on the cross was that his disciples, those who followed him, loved being with one another. They loved sharing meals together, they loved praying together, they loved gathering together in every way imaginable. And Acts 2 gives us this glimpse of how they'd been transformed by Jesus to no longer want to live in isolation or as individuals, but they wanted to live together. They wanted to do life together. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the discipline of gathering. Not simply being together, but living life together. There's a very significant word in verse 42 in Acts 2 when it talks about fellowship. When it says that they devoted themselves to the fellowship, it's a Greek word, koinonia. And what koinonia is, is it's a very deep, abiding 
communion together. It is joint participation, it's intimacy, it's vulnerability and openness. This is what they devoted themselves to. And I think in a series entitled The Disciplines of Grace, it's a really great verse for us because we can see that it didn't come naturally to them. They had to devote themselves to it. It wasn't necessarily easy. The, the fact that we are told that they devote themselves to this fellowship, to koinonia, means that they were striving to be better at it. They wanted to grow in it. They knew that within gathering, within community, there was a grace to be found. There was a knowledge of God to be found that they couldn't find anywhere else. So they devoted themselves to fellowship, to eating around tables together. And they did that because they'd seen Jesus gathering in his lifetime with all kinds of people, all manners of people, people that they never thought they could sit across a table from, let alone live life alongside. People would regularly ask the disciples when they would walk around with Jesus, why does your teacher sit down and eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because Jesus would sit across from all manners of people that would make other people suspicious of him. Jesus, perhaps more than anything else, loved eating meals with people. And he didn't just eat it with tax collectors and sinners, he ate it with the people that were his very enemies. There's an account in Luke where a Pharisee asked Jesus to come and eat a meal with him. Now, I don't know whether that Pharisee was intending to humiliate Jesus or mock Jesus, but what I know is that Jesus wanted to go to that meal and did go to that meal. He sat down across a table from someone who would eventually be part of a group that wanted him killed, but Jesus ate a meal with him because Jesus loved koinonia. He loved fellowship. He loved sitting across tables and enjoying life with all kinds of people. Are we as devoted to gathering as Jesus was? Are we as devoted to fellowship as the disciples were in the early church? Do we love koinonia, life on life, as much as they did? We can all do it. Every Christian is perfectly qualified to be with others. You don't need to be a theology expert or a Bible expert. You don't need to be the best at creating elo eloquent speeches or telling people about your faith, every one of us is perfectly qualified to live life with someone else, to live life with many other people. There are people in our neighborhoods and on our blocks who could be incredibly transformed by the simple act of asking them to come over for dinner and getting to know them. I think part of our culture right now is we, uh, we've kind of settled for not knowing our neighbors that well. I know that there are still many of us, especially in this church, wonderful people who are really good at getting to know the people around them, their neighbors. But I remember when we started our neighborhood initiative and we talked about being a chapel on our street, I was very convicted because I realized there was many people on my block whose name I didn't even know, let alone have invited them over for dinner or spend time getting to know them. We live in a culture where it's, it's more challenging than not to gather together with other people. but God has asked us to do this. And he doesn't simply ask us to do this so that we can be better people and check a box and say, see, we like to get together with others. He's asked us to do this because there is a grace to be found and a joy to be known in getting together with other people, living our lives with other people, sharing our homes and our resources with other people. When was the last time that you invited someone over to your home to eat a meal with you 
and spend time just getting to know them. And I don't mean entertaining someone. I don't mean inviting someone around and spending some time playing games and eating food, but never really having that connection of knowing what's going on in one another's lives. Again, when we talk about Christian fellowship, when we talk about koinonia, we are talking about being open with one another and sharing our lives together, weeping with one another, laughing with one another, talking about what God is doing in our lives, talking about the ways in which some of our friends don't know God and being willing to have a conversation with them. See, I'm sure that when we think about this and when I say that we gather to proclaim Jesus, there's a part of you that thinks what I'm saying is when you invite someone to dinner, you wait till the important moment and then you sneak attack them with a Jesus speech. <laughs> but the truth is, what we're really talking about is much simpler than that. Like I said, you don't need to be an eloquent orator to speak to them about Jesus. You simply need to be present with them, open up your life and be willing to listen to their stories, to talk to them. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus in the Bible, Zacchaeus was a man uh, that not a lot of people liked. Jesus came into his town and Jesus said to him, I wanna eat a meal with you, Zacchaeus. And then the only other details we're told is that Zacchaeus does go and eat a meal with Jesus and when he walks out of that meal with Jesus, he says, I want to sell everything I have to pay back everyone I've defrauded. See, Zacchaeus, as far as we are told in God's word, was not transformed by a sermon or a speech from Jesus, although I'm sure Jesus said some very interesting things at that meal. What transformed Zacchaeus was the fact that God was willing to sit at a table across from him and enjoy him, to spend time with him. That's why I say that when we gather, we proclaim who God is, because when I sit across a table from someone, and enjoy them, and listen to their stories, I am representing and demonstrating the God who did that for me. The God who invited me to his table, who enjoys me, who wants to know me. And that can open up doors in people's hearts that we never anticipated would be opened. Don't underestimate the simple power of gathering and enjoying a meal with others, and serving others, being hospitable. This week, as a family, make dinner together something special. Talk with each other about what's going on in your lives and the way that God is moving in your lives. We should take joy in gathering together so that we could proclaim the truth of the God who loves us and gathers us together. The second reason we gather together is to worship. We gather to worship. Now, I'm going to confess something to you guys this morning that I I need your forgiveness ahead of time for. There are some people in church that I find it difficult to get along with. Dare I say that there are some people that I'd rather not even run into. I know I'm a sinner, I'm a terrible person. We should all love being at church at all times and love everyone wonderfully. But the truth is, I think a lot of us have a mental list of certain types of people that we have a harder time spending time with than others. If you would indulge me, perhaps there is someone in church who sings a little bit off key during the worship time. And you know if I sit next to that person, it's, I'm gonna get in a bad mood. Maybe there is someone who during prayer time is the mmm person, or like, mmm, yes, Lord. And they sit and you're like, oh gosh, let's be quiet before Jesus. <laughs> Maybe there is someone who breathes too loudly during the sermon. They're a mouth breather like me, they're like, 
right? There, there is a silly list of all kinds of things that can irritate us because the truth is people don't get along with people very easily. It doesn't take a lot for us to be irritated by someone or to be annoyed by someone. And if we really press this, it's not just silly things sometimes. It's not just things like what I just mentioned. Sometimes there are people in churches who have been deeply wounded by other people. People who don't want to gather together because they have been betrayed, because they have been wounded, because they have felt ignored or invisible. The truth is that real community, koinonia fellowship, is very, very difficult. So how do we do it? How do we gather together with other people when we can be so easily wounded and make it work? In verse 46 of Acts 2, this is what we, it goes on to tell us about the disciples. It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, the second reason we gather together is worship, to praise God. And true fellowship is built around worship. The community that grew out of Jesus' disciples and his early followers didn't grow cold. We're told in Acts 2 that it went on day by day. And it eventually went on to be year by year. And then decade by decade. And that koinonia fellowship kept going and never ended. And I can cite examples from the Bible to you this morning as to why I know that that can't have been easy. People who disagreed about things. People who fought. People who continued in sin. If you read the letter to the Corinthians, you will find things in there that astound you. And you will realize that the fellowship that was going on in the early church was not easy. There was all manner of things happening. There was all kinds of people sitting across tables from people they never thought they would. Jews and Gentiles, tremendous racial tension between those groups. Men and women who had never worshipped in the way that they were worshipping together all of a sudden. Young and old. People of all kinds of backgrounds and moral experiences. But the disciples were not united by their commonality and because they were with people who thought like them, they were united because they all worshiped Jesus. Because they had all been loved by the same man, they had all been rescued by the same man, and that formed the core of what they were doing. Those two words in Acts 46, on the start of verse 47, praising God, that is the core of what was happening in Acts 2. They were devoting themselves to the fellowship, they were devoting themselves to all these other things because of Jesus, because they wanted to lift him up, because they wanted to know him more, because he was the center of everything that they were doing. Later in the New Testament comes one of my favorite verses in the Bible from a book called Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, this is what we are told. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Whoever the author of Hebrews was, because we're not exactly sure, is indicating that there was some in the early church who had started to wane in their love for fellowship. Some that were neglecting to gather together. 
I don't know whether that means going to the temple, whether that means gathering in homes, or maybe a combination of all of those. But what we know is that the author of Hebrews says, don't do that. Don't be like those groups of people that neglect to gather together. Let's gather together so that we can grow, so that we can stir one another up to good works. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, let's do it so that we can all worship Jesus better. Gathering together will fuel your worship like nothing else. It will drive you to see who Jesus is, sometimes because of the malfunctions and the imperfections of people around you. It's sometimes described that people who come to church and experience hurt are disillusioned because they come in expecting church to be a place that it doesn't turn out to be. In some ways, it's good to be disillusioned because that, what that means is that the illusion that we are all perfect people is disappearing. I think that's a wonderful thing to have in church, to let that disappear because we're not. We're all broken, messy people. And we're not here because we all get along really well and work so great. We're here because of Jesus. Because no matter what our story is or how different we are from one another, all of us have been loved by him and sought after by him and rescued by him. On hard days, it's easy for me to slip into the belief that following God can be done on its own. But the truth is it can't. It's very important that we know that. You can't follow Jesus by yourself apart from community. Have you ever lit a match by itself and then taken a group of matches and light them together? When you light that match by itself, it burns, but it withers quickly and it passes away. But when you light a whole bunch of matches together, the reaction is far more vigorous, there's far more fire and heat and light that come out of it, it burns for longer, and it goes more distance. The truth is, being a Christian, apart from community, is like a match that's lit by itself. You can perfectly represent Jesus as an individual, and in fact, I encourage you, God wants you to represent him as an individual, but he also wants you to do it as part of community. And when you do it as part of community, the passion and the desire for Jesus will burn brighter, it will burn longer, and you will become part of something far bigger than you are on your own. It is possible to worship by yourself, but together there's something bigger, something brighter, and something better. Something that sings out to the world the glory of who God is. When our priority is worship together, when Jesus is the center of our worship services, then as the old hymn says, the, th the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It won't matter what the flaws or the imperfections of the person next to me are. It won't even matter how I've been wounded because Jesus is the reason that I'm here. Jesus is the reason that I love the person next to me and share my life with them. Jesus is the reason why people share their life with me because I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy of people sharing their life with me. Jesus is the one who makes that work. You know, I read a study recently, I just want to share very quickly, that said a number of Christians were now more likely to break fellowship over social issues and political differences than they were over matters of theology. And when I read that report, what that communicated to me is that there's a growing number of Christians 
whose center of fellowship had ceased to be Jesus and became other things that they had in common, what they thought about the world or society. And it's true that when we get together, there's always going to be things that we have in common, but those things should never take the place of priority in our worship gatherings. We should be able to stand next to someone who voted differently from us, has lived differently than us, has all kinds of different experiences than us, because of Jesus, because he's loved us both, because he wants us both. I'm so proud to be part of a church that holds Jesus Christ as the center of our worship services. I'm so proud to be a part of a community that believes Jesus is our greatest hope, that he's the reason for everything we do. I'm proud that I'm raising my kids in a church that puts Jesus above everything else because it has created a community at Chapel Street that I think is second to none. By having Jesus as center, it has given us grace to love one another better. The final reason we gather together is to remember. The final words of Acts 2, 47 are this. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number. He was creating it. He was shaping that community. He was driving the growth in that community. Gathering together is important because it reminds us that God has not saved us to be independent from other people, but that God has primarily saved us to be a part of a family. God saves people to make them a part of something bigger than themselves. From the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we are told when God creates Adam that it's not good for man to be alone. And so God creates a community for that man. He creates him a wife and goes on to create a people for his own name. When we come to Abram in Genesis, God says that he is going to create a people through Abraham's family. We go on to hear in the New Testament words similar to what God said to Abram, echoed through Peter, Jesus' friend, who says in his letter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And at the end of all things, at the end of the story of the Bible, we are told that we will sit around a table with Jesus with all the multitudes of God's people, and together we will celebrate the Lamb. We'll celebrate what Jesus has done as a community, as a fellowship. Koinonia fellowship is gonna go on even into the end of the age into heaven because we are a people, because Christianity and God's work is about a community of believers, a family, sons and daughters of God. Don't be robbed of the joy that God is seeking to give you in his son. Not simply salvation and heaven, but a family where you can find support, where you can find comfort, where you can find rest. That is what we at Chapel Street desire this community to be. A place where people can find rest and support and can find the love of God. I think that a Christian who doesn't gather with others to proclaim and to worship is kind of like a new pair of shoes that doesn't ever get taken out of the box. It'll never get scuffs on them, they'll never get dirty, they'll never wear down, but they won't travel very far. They won't do what they were made to do. 
Church family, you were made to be a part of community, to share your life with one another so that you can better know the joy of being loved by God. Even in the head and even in the wounded moments, you were created to be a part of community. If you have not had the opportunity to dive deeper into our church, I would encourage you to reach out to Laura Terrow, our director of small groups, and she will find a place for you to connect because I want you to be connected. We want you to be connected. We want to know you. We want to share our lives with you. We want to support you better. If I sound like I'm a little intense about this subject, it's because community is what has driven the greatest change in my life as a Christian. You see, when I did move to Texas, I moved there to be a part of a church, and it was very, very uncomfortable. All that Britishness came to the surface, and all of a sudden, I wasn't so sure about it. But I was introduced to a community of believers that wanted to truly know who I was, to know my struggles, to know my burdens, to know my questions about Jesus, that wanted to be with me in the moments when I needed people around me. They became a family to me by loving me and serving me, by inviting me around to eat with them, by inviting me to be a part of worship. I'm honestly not sure if I would be here today continuing to follow Jesus, Jesus had that community not reached out to me with a devotion to fellowship. It changed everything about who I was and it ultimately sent me towards, alongside some other things, a desire to be in ministry. Because I found in that fellowship and in that gathering something I couldn't find anywhere else. And it was uncomfortable and it was difficult, but it changed me. So here is our challenge for this week. I'm going to give you two options. Option number one, gather with other followers of Jesus around a meal to celebrate the goodness of God in each other's lives. Set a date, find a time, and ask this question, where are you seeing God's goodness and grace most clearly in your life right now? Or option two, set a date to gather with friends and neighbors or complete strangers in your home with the express purpose of creating opportunities for them to experience the gracious and welcoming heart of God through your hospitality. Community is hard, and the discipline of gathering can be tough. But let us practice that discipline that we might better know the grace and the love of the God who has gathered us to himself and who has given us a family in his people. As we close, we are gonna to come to the Lord's table. And what is so unique and so powerful about this table is this is a tangible, practical way that we can remember that God has gathered us together in himself because we come to a table, a shared table, and we remember Jesus, broken body and his shed blood. So as I pray for us, I'm going to ask that in this time that God would do something unique and gather us as we come to his table this morning. This is not Chapel Street Church's table, it's Jesus' table. And so if you believe that he is your savior, that he is the son of God who shed his blood for you, then you are welcome to come and partake of this. The ushers will distribute this as needed. But let me pray as we enter this time of worship. Father, thank you for your table. Thank you that your table is a symbol of how you have gathered us together, not through our commonalities, but through your shed blood, through your cross. You have made us a family. Lord, as we take these elements, as we take the bread and the cup, Lord, may we remember 
the wonderful sacrifice that you made and what that has purchased for us. Not only forgiveness, but a family. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Today, as the bread is being distributed and later the cup, we're going to sing together. This is a hymn written by the Gettys recently um, called Behold the Lamb. And I'm going to start singing. If you know it, please join me. If not, by verse 2, I think it'll become familiar to you. So we'll sing two verses, another verse later, and another verse at the end of the service. our sins away slain for us and we